Hi, I'm Kennedy Brown. Happy New Year and welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you Happy New Year, Ashley. Happy New Year. 2023 is here for our listeners. Now, to be fair, we are actually recording this before Christmas. Before Christmas. But we're super excited about the start of our new year and the theme that we have in store. Yes. And if you just heard, our special guest Mm -hmm. was Miss Kennedy Brown, and she has a very special tie to today's episode. Which we are both very excited about. I am very excited about this. Yeah. Ashley and I have a big connection, which we're Mm going to share for you in just a moment. But first, let me just, just tell you the theme. Our theme for January is called A Bend in the Road, Mm -hmm. and it comes from a quote that we found and absolutely love. Here it is. A bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. I like that a lot. And that is a quote by Miss Helen Keller, who is actually the focus of today's episode. And who Kennedy played when she was 11 years old Mm -hmm. for a show that you and I were both in. I was Annie and you were Mrs. Keller. That's right. Yeah, we had a great experience. We did. So that's one of the reasons why we are so connected Mm -hmm. to Helen Keller and Mm -hmm. we're big fans. Yes. But can you share a little bit more about why you admire her so much or any of your history with Helen Keller? Well, I did not have a big history with Helen Keller or Annie Sullivan prior to this play. I, I knew of them. I had seen the movie. I'd heard, you know, just the, the surface stuff that everybody's probably heard of. But once I was in it, and I didn't go in it gunning for any anything other than I would I would like the challenge of being in this play. And I honestly thought I was going to probably get cast as a mother because I was the correct age for the mother. I had no thought that I would be Annie, but I thought this would be awesome if I could because I was so much older than the character mm-hmm. was supposed to be. But when I was cast as Annie, it was my first time ever playing a lead. Mm-hmm. So it been in theater for 17 years at that point it was my first time having a final bow ever wow so it was it was a big moment but after playing Annie specifically I became such an advocate for Annie Sullivan Mm -hmm. because she is so overlooked in the history of Helen Keller it's almost as if people think that Helen sort of self-automated but someone had to teach her someone had to get her to the point that we know her of today and that person was Annie Mm -hmm. someone first had to reach her someone first before she could teach her yes and I think that was the power that of that story. That was the story. power. And mm-hmm. that's what the Miracle Worker is about. The play ends basically where Annie and Helen's life together begins because mm-hmm. it's the moment she finally breaks through this 
little tyrant that is running the home. In the play, Helen's only about five or six and Kennedy and I were both older than the roles. Kennedy was 11. I was 37 playing Mm -hmm. someone who was supposed to be in her early 20s, but we'll hear a little bit from Kennedy later on. But we both just really resonated with those characters. Mm -hmm. And it has been something that has impacted the rest of my life because things, personality quirks of Annie's, her bravery, her kind of stubbornness, her I know that I'm right, just listening to her gut and going, I know how to do this. And I've taken that with me mm-hmm. since playing her. It's really, it actually altered a bit of my personality because I'll think, well, what would Annie do about this? Mm. This is how Annie would approach this. Wow. She she's made, a, she's she, a big hero for you. She really is. She made me a braver person. That's a, that's a big compliment. I think that she would probably reject that compliment because that was part of her personalities. Also, she was, ex- she was extremely arrogant, but also extremely humble. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. Confident. Maybe it's not arrogant. Maybe it no, was. No, she was arrogant. You she'll think so? Yes, okay. <laughs> she says that she was arrogant. She'll say, you know, I know I'm right. And I know this. But that, mm-hmm. that was that confidence. But it was that arrogance of, no, you're wrong. Yeah. So a confidence little, is. Yeah. Confidence, yes. Confidence yeah. is saying, I know I'm right. But I see where you're coming from. Hers was, no, I'm right. And you're <laughs> wrong. And, and I'm going to do it my way. But she was also so humble that she, she almost wanted to disappear from history. People kept saying to her, you need to tell other people how you did this. And she would never really, no, I don't want to. I don't want to be mm-hmm. the focus. Helen should be the focus. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I could go on and on. But she, at, her, at the end of her life, they offered her this honorary degree. Mm. And she refused it because she's like, no, no, I don't deserve it. But there was this moment where the audience, I, I read it in this book, Beyond the Miracle Worker by Kim E. Nielsen. I hope I pronounced her last name right. And they said that spontaneously, one of the other honorary people receiving the degree, another degree said, well, we're going to have the audience vote on it. And they all leapt to their feet and like oh. applauded her. And it was, wow. it was a beautiful moment of recognition that took a lifetime to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting because of course this episode is about Helen Keller, mm-hmm. but you bring up a good point. Mm-hmm. Annie Sullivan certainly is an integral part yeah. of Helen's story. And with our theme of a bend in the road, both ladies had bends yes. in the roads that they had to navigate. And yes. by the way, just to kind of flesh this out a little bit more, that's what we're focusing on this month. Every episode will focus on different people who navigated those bends in the roads that Mm -hmm. they encountered. Mm -hmm. So we are going to talk about Helen, but obviously knowing so much about her story and feeling so passionately about both women, make sure you jump in whenever you want to, Ashley. I will just offer one comment. Playing Kate Keller was interesting. Yes, tell me about that. Because it really made me think of the parent perspective, Mm. because we'll get to this, of course, as we start to talk about Helen's life in a moment. But the powerlessness of a parent to have a child who she could not reach. She adored Helen with every fiber of her being and desperately wanted to help her child, but she didn't have the skill set or the know-how to try to reach this young, very young daughter who was blind and deaf. Mm -hmm. And the empathy- But who wasn't born that way. Right. And that's that's heartbreaking too because she had her she was reaching her and then she lost her that's a great point but it made me think about the family and how sometimes in trying to help you can also yes hinder yes and you will I know we're going to come back to yes. this but it really gave me a great perspective that I'd never thought about in terms of Helen Keller's story mm-hmm. well, let's go ahead and start talking about Helen's let's do life it. why don't we Helen Adams Keller was born on June 27th 1880 to Colonel Arthur Keller and Kate Adams Keller in the small North Alabama town of Tuscumbia. 
Arthur was a captain in the Confederate Army, and he was a widow with two sons when he married Kate. Right. Now, his family had a little bit of status and wealth in their mm-hmm. in their history, but they had actually lost most of their wealth during the Civil War. So the Kellers actually lived very modestly. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the captain also had, I think, a very literary background. Um, ah. Yeah, he was he after the war. Yes, right? he did. He edited a local newspaper called The North Alabamian, and in 1885... Under the Cleveland administration, he actually was appointed Marshal of North Alabama. So he had, as we portrayed, as we saw Mm -hmm. when we were doing the play, there was almost a little bit of... Importance. Importance, self-importance. Right. Which I think also hindered him a little bit. Right, right. One of the things in this book that as I was kind of thumbing through it again last night to remind myself, the book by Kim E. Nielsen, Annie commented that she started getting along with the family much better when she stopped arguing about the Civil War <laughs> with, with Uncle Frank. So there was an Uncle Frank, but she, she because she's a, she's a Northerner mm-hmm. and they're Southerners. So she came in there as this little Yankee and said, <laughs> you know, she said, they act like they won the war. <laughs> it, it was funny. Well, and this is a man who's used to being in control. Yes. And he had no power to control the situation right. with his daughter. Right. And here comes this young upstart, upstart. <laughs> from his perspective. So there's so many dynamics here. Mm-hmm. Right. So anyway, as Ashley had already alluded, Helen was born with sight and the ability to hear. But when she was only 19 months old, which would have been around early 1882, she contracted a fever that left her both deaf and blind. Was it scarlet fever or just a general fever did they say what i saw across several articles was people speculating that it was either scarlet fever or rubella but nobody could pin it down okay now again the family did not know how to help her and one article described her as becoming very quote wild and unruly yes they just they just let her do whatever she wanted to yeah here was a little tidbit that i did not remember Mm -hmm. from being involved with this when helen was not quite seven years old her mother and father took her to see dr Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, yeah. He was a figure that was very important in their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I did not realize, I, I didn't do a deep dive on him, but he had a big history with, especially with, with deafness. Yeah, or I with, didn't know that. With sound, mm-hmm. because his mother had difficulty hearing. He had, I think it was his father and grandfather who were involved with speech therapy. Like, he, this was a man who was very involved with sound. Right. And I did not put that together until I saw this. So it said in this article, of course, we know him as the inventor of the telephone, but he had lifelong involvement and work helping the hearing impaired. Hmm. So in 1887, Captain Arthur Keller traveled from Alabama to meet with Alexander Graham Bell in order to seek help for Helen. It was Alexander Graham Bell who directed them to the Perkins School for the Blind. Mm -hmm. And according to this article, this is where they met the recent graduate, Annie Sullivan, who would end up coming in. She was their star pupil is what they called her. Mm -hmm. To follow up on your point, Mm -hmm. yes, they absolutely became lifelong friends. In fact, I did not know this either, but Helen Keller would end up dedicating her autobiography to him. And she gave him credit for, quote, opening the door through which I should pass from darkness into light. That is the truth. He did open that door. And they became obviously lifelong friends. And I actually have a copy, a paperback copy of Helen Keller, The Story of My Life. I just opened it and it says to Alexander Graham Bell, who has taught the deaf to speak and enabled the listening ear to hear speech from the Atlantic to the Rockies. I dedicate the story of my life. Love that. Yes. How handy that you had that. I know, book right I just there. had it right here. I love that. So it was on March 3rd of 1887 when Annie Sullivan arrived 
in Alabama to be Helen's teacher. She was not yet 21. I know. I know. That That's why when crazy. I was 37, I was like, really, guys? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but to think of a 20-year-old girl who had just graduated from the Perkins School for the Blind showing up to take on this challenge, like, that got me. Uh, well, if you dive a little bit into Annie's history, and I am, for, for any other person out there who is an Annie advocate, please forgive me if I get some of these details wrong, because I'm literally going from the index in my brain. But I think that when she went to this institute, she couldn't read or write herself. Mm -hmm. She had come out of an orphanage and the asylum and she just, she took life by the coattails and said, I want an education. Mm -hmm. And she got herself out of there mm -hmm. by going up to some men who were touring the place and said, I, I need, please help me. I want to learn or some, something like that. And so that started the ball rolling for her to get out of there. And, and she learned all of this in like, what, four, four yes. years? Yes. And became their star pupil. Mm -hmm. This, she was a phenomenon. Yeah. I did not do a deep dive, but I saw just a few details, which I'm going to add to piggyback on what you mm -hmm. just said. It, it did say in my research that Annie was the daughter of poor Irish immigrants yes. and that she entered Perkins at 14 years of age after four, they used the word horrific years as a ward of the state at the Tewksbury Almshouse in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So they pointed out that she had her own very serious issues. She suffered from very serious vision problems mm -hmm. and she had undergone many botched operations yes. when she was very young before her sight was partially restored. But yeah. she suffered with yes. these vision problems forever. That's why she wore the dark glasses mm -hmm. because light would hurt her eyes and the dust that would get in her eyes. She had horrible vision. She was fairly well blind herself. Yeah. So into this situation steps Annie Sullivan. And I love this quote that came from one of the articles. It said, with patience, understanding and love, Miss Sullivan was able to save Helen from her. Now this quote is actually from Helen herself. Mm -hmm. Double dungeon of darkness and mm. silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So according to Helen's biography on the American Foundation for the Blind website, they say that the film The Miracle Worker, if you've ever seen it, really did a good job of depicting the way Helen was. They said she was unruly. She was a she monster. She was spoiled, yes. but very bright. And yes. they used the term, she tyrannized the household with her temper tantrums. Yes. Like she controlled that house. Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the thing that, that helped me in as far as playing Annie is because it taught me how to deal sort of with these people or children who are unruly. And, and Annie's big thing is discipline. Mm -hmm. Discipline first, and then the education will come because then you can reach them. Mm -hmm. But you have to mean what you say. Say what you mean and then mean what you say. Have some backbone behind it. Don't give in to them. Wow, you did a really good job with that because here's exactly what this article said what they said that annie believed the key to reaching helen was to teach her obedience yes and love she saw the need to discipline but not crush yes. the spirit of helen yes and so that's why as we saw in the play within a week of her arrival she had gotten permission to remove helen from the main house and live alone with her in that nearby cottage mm -hmm. and they remained there for two weeks and but they only gave her two weeks they said you get that's two weeks right. that's two. it yeah here's your deadline so she began annie began the task of trying to teach helen by manually signing into helen's hand 
hand. Yes, and yes. She, she, it was so revolutionary because she said, I am going to teach her the way a human speaks, the way a mother would talk to a baby. She just talks to her. Mm-hmm. So the way we're going to do this is I'm going to use full sentences. I'm going to talk to her. And then as soon as I can get that one connection, it's just mm-hmm. going to, the floodgates are going to open. Yes. That was revolutionary. Absolutely. She needed her to understand that these things that she was spelling mm-hmm. into her Have hand a connection. actually connected to this object, physical meaning, this right. physical idea. Yes. So Annie had brought a doll that the children from Perkins had made for her to take to Helen. And one of her first attempts was she kept spelling doll into Helen's hand, trying to get her to connect to that doll. Yeah. And they said that Helen quickly learned to form the letters correctly. She could get in the correct order, but she was just repeating things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was no actual cognitive connection being made there. Yeah, she did not understand that she was spelling a word. She didn't even know words existed. Mm -hmm. So she was building this vocabulary of words, but there was no comprehension. Mm -hmm. On April 5th, 1887, less than a month after she had arrived at the Keller home, Annie was trying to to clear up this confusion that Helen was having between the nouns mug and milk, Mm -hmm. which Helen kept confusing with the verb drink. Mm -hmm. And so Annie took Helen to the water pump outside (gasps) and put (laughs) Helen's hand under the spout. Yes. And then as we see in the play, as the cool water was gushing over one hand, she spelled into Helen's other hand the word water for slowly and then rapidly and this was when Helen made the huge connection she finally got it that this w-a-t-e-r meant this this water this substance that was flowing over her hand and it said in this article that you know quickly she stopped she touched the earth she demanded to know what that was and by nightfall she had learned 30 words within a year she had learned 900 it's insane I mean it's just the craziest thing to think about yes it literally opened the door for that child yes it did it's such a powerful moment in the play I got goosebumps just remembering it because it's the big climactic ending yeah that I mean like that's how the play ends except for the one little follow-up scene right afterwards like oh where she goes to her parents and then she gives her to teach her mm -hmm. yeah I I felt like that was kind of that symbolic giving it shows here's her future she's now Annie's right Arthur did not live too much longer I don't think into certainly not until I think he was gone by the time Helen was 20 so Mm -hmm. I, I can't remember when he passed but Kate and Annie sort of became her co-parents mm-hmm. yeah they made the decisions for her well and and it wasn't long before Helen went off to school too no yeah well but to pick up where we just left off mm-hmm. they said that of course you know she's learning all these words she quickly proceeded to master the alphabet both manual and in race print for blind readers and then she started to be able to read and write in fact they pointed out that Helen's handwriting really kind of looked square rather mm-hmm. than round in terms of her letters but you can easily read everything she wrote and in 1890 when she was just 10 years old she expressed a desire to learn to speak yeah so Annie took her to see Sarah Fuller at the Horace Mann School for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing in Boston and Sarah Fuller gave Helen 11 lessons after which Annie taught Helen so Helen was able to do some speaking but she was always unhappy with her spoken voice she said she felt like it was too hard to understand but I wonder how she would know that how would she know that it was hard to understand? That's a good question. I wonder if it was the response she got from maybe, other people. Or maybe the vibration, Just mm-hmm. she just felt like... She knew that it didn't mm-hmm. seem right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, again, not only did she remain friends with Alexander Graham Bell, who was following all of these wonderful accomplishments and staying in contact with her, but this is where, along the way, she also caught the attention of Mark Twain. I know. And he became such a Helen fan. Yes. At one point, I don't remember, I don't know the date on this, but at some point, Mark Twain was quoted as saying, the two most interesting characters of the 19th century are Napoleon and Helen Keller. He's the one that actually gave Annie the the title, The Miracle Worker. Yes. It's from him. I had that quote coming up. No, yes. okay, sorry. No, 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 no absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Go on, finish what you were saying. Well, I discovered that because, again, I'm such a huge Annie and Helen fan that when our theater, when, when the pandemic hit and our theater was looking for things to do that were safe not being on stage, I wrote a kind of tiny follow-up about Helen and Annie because Kennedy at that time was 14 mm-hmm. so in 2020 and I was like well what was Helen up to when she was age 14 and so I found where Mark Twain was really responsible for getting her the funding to go to Radcliffe to continue her higher education mm-hmm. because they had become such friends and he thought she was such a remarkable person yes. that we needed to continue this education and so we wrote this short film about it and Kennedy and I got to reprise our roles and it was it was uh, you know had local actors our friend John played Mark Twain. My friend Matt directed it. So that's where I learned about that. So this fits very nicely because just prior to what you would be talking about, we actually had another situation where Mark Twain and Alexander Graham Bell were involved in Helen's life. Okay. When she was 11, and this would have been when she was at school, she was away at school and Annie was with her, she was accused of plagiarism. Yes. And I know you know a little bit about this, so why don't you fill in a few of the details? Okay, so what ended up happening is Annie and this man named Anagonos that is in The Miracle Worker, and he and Annie, he was kind of the, I don't know if he was the institutional lead of the Perkins Institute at the time, I can't remember his official title, but he's he's in a leadership position. And him and Annie were, he's the one that recommended her for this job and they were close friends and they would correspond a lot. I don't know how I feel about him in the scope of history because I think he was kind of a person that was, when Annie was so successful with Helen, he kind of took credit for wow. it a little bit. And, and I mm-hmm. don't want to besmirch his name because this is just vague impressions I'm giving. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like Annie comments that anything I send him that Helen does, he immediately publishes it. Oh. And just sort of to bring, because it's like a star pupil, you know? We it gets got, attention. It brings attention right. to if their institute. Right. If you have a, a grand Hollywood actress that goes to your school, you're going to say like, Jennifer Lawrence went to this school. Annie Sullivan went to this school. Who taught Helen Keller? And there's your two degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's just like tying it back. So Helen wrote this story and called it The Frost King. And I can't remember if Helen sent it to him or if Annie sent it to him somebody sends it to him and he loves it and he thinks it's brilliant he immediately publishes it well Annie I think Annie was out of town at the time all of this transpires either she sent it to him and then she left for a bit but it gets read by somebody who goes wait a minute that's that's not original Mm -hmm. that's the frost fairies so by this time he he jumped the gun he went ahead and published it when he should have checked his resources because she accidentally she swears it was accidental. Everyone swears it was accidental. I think it was accidental. You know how you hear something and then you don't realize
realize it, you've heard mm-hmm. it before and you end up regurgitating it as an original work. All writers, especially new writers, tend to kind of do that. They mm-hmm. kind of You write... base things on things you've heard before right, or ideas right. that inspire right. you. Or you may not even have realized that you've done this. Mm-hmm. So it turns into this huge scandal. Mm-hmm. And Anagonos, again, everybody kind of blames Annie. Because you can't blame Helen. She didn't do it on purpose. Obviously, someone has told her this story and she has passed it off as original. So everybody kind of started turning against Annie. But I believe Alexander Graham Bell is the one that said, no, this can't be right. You know, this, she probably heard it and she didn't mean to copy it. And let's just let all this die down. But they thought it had died down and then like three weeks later or something it comes back up but it's something that does follow them for the rest of Helen's life Mm, I think yeah and that a scandal I did I'll be honest I did not research all those details I just basically saw a reference to they called it a famous plagiarism accusation but what I did see I'm, I'm glad you remembered all that but what I did see is a note that said both Alexander Graham Bell and Mark Twain jumped to the defense, yeah. as you said, not just yeah. of Helen, but also of Annie. And they even mocked the people who were accusing them. Yeah. And there was a letter from Mark Twain to Helen where he literally talked about that, quote, plagiarism farce. Right. So, yeah, they were definitely 100% behind her and Annie. So moving on with the timeline, after attending Perkins School for the Blind for four years in 1898, Helen and the Cambridge School for the Young Ladies, which was a place where she was preparing to go to Radcliffe College. And then she entered Radcliffe in the fall of 1900, where she would end up receiving a Bachelor of Arts degree, cum laude, in 1904, which was a huge thing because she was the first ever deafblind person to earn a college degree. And I gotta say, the fact that they didn't give one to Annie too, because Annie was next to her, mm-hmm. and Annie had to be ahead of her in the lessons and spell into her hand everything that was being taught. Mm -hmm. Annie was right there, but Helen's the one that gets the degree. Yeah, I had a note that said this article, and by the way, I pulled a lot of resources from websites such as American Foundation for the Blind because Mm -hmm. they had a lot of information about Helen and Annie both, but they literally said that the achievement was as much Annie's as it was Helen's because Annie's eyes were suffering so much from having to read everything Mm -hmm. and then sign it to Helen that it was it was, it was a huge was obstacle. Asking, yeah, it was asking an awful lot from her. Yes, it this was. This was not an easy thing for no. her. By the way, just a quick little side note, Annie would end up staying by Helen's side until her death in 1936. And at that time, Polly Thompson took over the task. Polly had actually joined Helen and Annie in 1914 as a secretary. Mm-hmm. So she had such a relationship mm-hmm. that when Annie passed, she, she would end up, companion. yep, she ended up taking over. So just kind of giving you that little preview of what happens. While she she was a student at Radcliffe was when Helen really began her writing career and this is what would continue through her whole life. In 1903 was when her autobiography, The Story of My Life, that Ashley's already referenced, was published. It had first appeared in serial form that the year before in Ladies Home Journal magazine. And by the way, that autobiography has been translated into 50 languages and remains in print to this day. Of course, years later, it would also lead to the very famous play that we have now talked about several times, Mm -hmm. The Miracle Worker by William Gibson, who did base the play on that autobiography. And as you've already previewed, his title came from Mark Twain's quote, which was, Helen 
is a miracle and Miss Sullivan is the miracle worker. Oh, perfect. By the way, this is backing backtracking just a hair. I just randomly opened the story of my life to page 63 and it is talking about her time at the Cambridge School for Young Ladies as she prepared to go to Radcliffe mm, and yeah. it says, "Each day Miss Sullivan went to the classes with me and spelled into my hand with infinite patience all the teacher said. In study hours she had to look up new words for me and read and reread notes and books that I did not have in raised print." The tedium of that work is hard to conceive. That's a great quote to show what their experience was like. Yeah. Such a challenge for both of them. Such an accomplishment for both of them. Mm. Wow. Well, so since we've brought it up, let's Mm -hmm. go ahead and talk just a little bit more about the play. The Miracle Worker play premiered in 1959, and its original cast included Anne Bancroft as Annie Sullivan and Patty Duke as Helen Keller. Yes! Of course, it received great reviews, and the play actually won the Pulitzer Prize in 1960. Again, these two original stars who did such an amazing job, Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke, actually reunited for the 1962 film adaptation, which was also highly acclaimed. I'm so glad they got to do that. I love it when the original stars Mm -hmm. get to reprise their role. Me too. And it was so well received. In fact, William Gibson and Arthur Penn were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. And then Arthur Penn was nominated as Best Director. Both Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke won the Academy Mm -hmm. Award for Best Actress for Anne Bancroft and Best Supporting actress for mm-hmm. Patty Duke. Which we covered a little bit in our Whatever Happened to Betty and Joan That episode. is exactly right. <laughs> and then the play has been adapted for TV twice, but the first time was in 1979, and that was when Patty Duke got to play I Annie know, Sullivan. I know. I think and, that's so cool. And Melissa Gilbert mm-hmm. played it. And I think Melissa Gilbert has grown up to play Annie Sullivan in another adaptation. I can't, I can't swear to that, but you know I already have plans. Like, Kennedy, when you turn 21, <laughs> clear your calendar. Here's what's gonna happen (laughs) here's what's gonna happen yes oh and speaking of kennedy and since we're talking about the play yes we have a little sound bite from her, don't we? We, we do. Okay, let's hear it. Well, let's let's set it up first. To remind everyone, Kennedy, in 2017, we did this play, and Kennedy was 11 years old, mm-hmm. and she played Helen Keller. And did a fantastic job. Oh, my gosh. She was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So what we ask her is to kind of give her reflections on what it was like to play Helen mm-hmm. and what the role kind of taught her, how it impacted her. So these are her thoughts. The play taught me a lot about Helen and the adversity she faced daily. Everyone knows Helen Keller was blind and deaf, but it's different when you dig deeper and walk in the character's shoes. You actually feel and realize that she couldn't perform any typical daily tasks without major assistance. I was young when I played Helen, but even then, I could sense on a small scale just how difficult every aspect of her life was. When I came out of character after a rehearsal or performance, I was so appreciative and hyper-aware of my senses. To be able to look someone in the eyes, or turn around when someone said my name. Now that I'm older and can understand more of her historical significance, I'm just in awe of her accomplishments. It was hard enough for her to be alive, let alone truly live in the way that she did. I also learned a lot about the other characters in the process of playing Helen. Annie Sullivan, who I and most of the world didn't know as much about, may be one of the toughest and most determined women in all of history, in my opinion. She was so resilient despite her difficult circumstances, such as, you know, having to deal with Helen's family, Helen's attitude, and unprecedented challenges. Truly the best way to describe Annie is a miracle worker. For me, the most memorable part about playing Helen was portraying her first words. It was so emotional for me, the other characters, and of course the audience. 
It was her first connection between sign language and physical objects and people, something that changed her life forever. And this was very powerful to be a part of. To this day, my acting as Helen reminds me of how fortunate I am. The role really put things in perspective for me when I was 11 and still now. Annie and Helen are just such an inspiration. They're an encouragement to keep going throughout all kinds of adversity. That's something I think I will always remember. So that's Kennedy's thoughts. And this will come out on January 3rd. And mm. in two more days is Kennedy's birthday. Oh, happy and if, birthday, Kennedy. I know. Happy birthday. And if memory serves, she will be turning 17. Oh, my goodness. I know. That's crazy. I know. Well, I love she brought up such great points she did i didn't think about when she talked about coming out of rehearsal coming out of a rehearsal or out of a mm-hmm. performance that she could not if someone said helen she couldn't acknowledge that mm-hmm. she couldn't make eye contact she was doing a completely different show than the rest of us even though she mm-hmm. had no lines and let until the very end she had a word right. but she had to be so hyper focused in not looking at us and being in her own world and i'm just i was in awe of her performance mm-hmm. I remember when we were acting together, sometimes I would just get caught up in watching her and how brilliant Mm -hmm. she was. Man, she was amazing. Yeah, she was absolutely amazing. You know, another point that she brought up, which again goes back to our theme, the bend in the road. She talked about how both women, you know, had some challenges, Mm -hmm. but what they did, the way they navigated it and the amazing accomplishments, the way that they were able to to change the world or to impact other people and and events. And I, I don't know, it just it just brings home just the difference that one person can make. Yeah or, yeah, or two people. Mark Twain yeah. actually called them the twins. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Well, you know what? Before we move on, yes. why don't we take a short break and then we'll come back and move back into Helen's timeline. All right. Sounds good to me. Hey, everybody. I wanted to let you all know about a new perk we're going to be adding. Since season two launched, you may have heard our occasional shout outs at the top of the episodes. In the new year, we're going to offer that perk to any of our Buy Me A Coffee supporters that are interested. So if you'd like to take advantage of this opportunity and hear your voice on our podcast, visit www.buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. You don't have to sign up for anything. We won't spam your email, and there are options for a one-time donation or a monthly gift. Either way, you get the double bonus of making your Scandal Water debut, and you're helping us keep the stories brewing. Cheers! So when we left off, we were talking about Helen getting started with her autobiography. That's what kind of took us down that little rabbit trail Mm -hmm. to talk about the play and the film. But back to our point, Helen really saw herself as a writer first. In fact, her passport listed her profession as author. So while she was many things, she really identified with herself as being a writer. Nice. And of course, over the course of her lifetime, she wrote a number of books. I sometimes saw 12. I sometimes saw 14. Honestly, I didn't stop to look that up. But she wrote several books. And the Helen Keller archives contain over 475 speeches and essays that she wrote on topics like faith, blindness prevention, birth control, the rise of fascism in Europe, and atomic energy. Mm. So she was very well-rounded in Mm -hmm. the issues that she addressed. So 
Helen had declared this back when she graduated, that she really wanted her life's focus to be to help blind and deaf blind people. Mm -hmm. And this is something that she really went after. Mm -hmm. So for example, I mean, there's many examples we could give, but here's one. She worked for the American Foundation for the Blind from the mid-1920s until her death in 1968. And a lot of what she did was advocating for blind people or deaf blind people and for schools to have reading materials for them, just all kinds of things that would help them to be successful in life. She would regularly appear before state and national legislatures and international forums. In fact, it said she regarded herself as a, quote, world citizen visiting 39 countries on five continents between 1939 and 1957. Now it went on to say this woman, she was behind many causes. Not only was she very outspoken about the needs and issues that affected her fellow deaf and deafblind people, but she was a dogged supporter of women's suffrage, civil rights, the labor union movement, and lots of other important causes. In her later years, she traveled the world as a goodwill ambassador, and Winston Churchill once called her, quote, the greatest woman of our age. Goodness. Mm-hmm. Along the way, she acquired many honors. Here are just a few. She had several honorary university degrees. She had the Lions Humanitarian Award given to her, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the French Legion of Honor, and she was elected into the Women's Hall of Fame. She also met every president of the United States from Calvin Coolidge to John F. Kennedy. Wow. Yeah. So Helen suffered a stroke in 1960. And from 1961 onwards, she tended to live more quietly at her home in Westport, Connecticut. And her last major public appearance was in 1961 at Washington, D.C. So she was alive when the play came out. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. I wonder what she thought of it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully she felt honored by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, after that, that she was awarded that Medal of Freedom that I have already referenced, that was 1964. And Helen died on June 1st, 1968, at the age of 87. She was laid to rest in St. Joseph's Chapel at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Senator Lister Hill of Alabama gave a eulogy during the public memorial service, during which one of the things he said was this, She will live on one of the few, the immortal names not born to die. Her spirit will endure as long as man can read and stories can be told of the woman who showed the world there are no boundaries to courage and faith. And it was actually five years after her death in 1973 that she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Mm. I wish it had been her and Annie, but Mm -hmm. I'm glad she was. So there we have Helen's life. Mm. But Ashley, do you know, as I was researching her, I came across something very surprising to me. What's that? So on the Perkins School for the Blind site, where Mm -hmm. they also had a lot of information about Helen Keller. In fact, some of this research comes from them. I should say that. Give them a shout out as well. But they had this whole article written to basically address, um, how do I put this, accusations, I guess, Oh, that some of the accomplishments credited to Helen Keller were false. Like what? 
Okay. I'm about to tell you because this... You're getting fired up. It so took me by surprise because it sounded as though this was a hugely widespread thing and I was totally unaware of that. So in this article, they have this quote from Helen Keller that starts it. I would like to read this as well. The public must learn that the blind man is neither a genius nor a freak nor an idiot. He has a mind which can be educated, a hand which can be trained, Mm -hmm. ambitions which it is right for him to strive to realize... And it is the duty of the public to help him make the best of himself so that he can win light through work. Mm. And so this article goes on to say that throughout her life, Helen was accused of being her fraud and that many people would say that because she couldn't see or hear that these stories of her doing great things like learning to talk or flying a plane or writing these books were not... She flew a plane? Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. Okay. Yes. And so they named this tendency for people to react this way as ableism. Oh. Have you heard of this term I've heard of the term, yeah. I have not. Ableism is the discrimination of and social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. At its heart, ableism defines people by their disability. Now, again, this is all from this article. Okay. So what they did was because they were appalled at people saying that some of this was erroneous, that these uh, accomplishments were not true. Or some people even said that she was faking her deaf no, blindness. No, that's not something you'd want to fake. I, I just can't even imagine. Oh my goodness. But because she was a former student at Perkins School for the Blind and because they have so many of her her works and, and different pictures and things in their Helen Keller collection in their archives... They asked one of their workers, Susanna Coit, who is an archivist and research library assistant for their school, Mm -hmm. to refute the allegations that Helen Keller could not have reached her, this is their wording, could not have reached her pinnacles of achievement because she was disabled. So this article would literally go through and it listed like different- Take it point by point. Point by point. I'm not going to give you all of them. Okay. But I'm going to hit a couple of them. So there, at one point, Helen Keller was given credit for piloting a plane and- she addresses this. Okay. Here's what she shares in this article. The pilot made accommodations. He sat next to Helen Keller and he communicated instructions to her via her interpreter and companion, Polly Thompson, who we've already talked about. And they even had, they would go ahead and and include in here the whole story from a 1946 newspaper article and they link that so that you can read about it. That she actually did fly a plane. She flew it, but she was, you know, she was basically navigating it following the instructions of the person and sitting beside her. Okay. And then they would talk about, for example, she rode a bicycle and they would say, well, how could she ride a bicycle? It was a tandem bicycle where she was beside them. And so it takes it point by point. Okay. Some people even question the idea that she made the connection to water. And it is, it really surprised me when I was reading this article, Mm -hmm. the different things that apparently people have questioned. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I came across a Time Magazine article which to me kind of followed up on this idea a little bit of the ableism. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read from this Time Magazine article their intro and then we'll talk about the point that they make. Is it a recent article? It is from, it's a couple years old. Okay. Okay. Most students learn that Keller 
born June 27, 1880 in Tuscumbia, Alabama, was left deaf and blind after contracting a high fever at 19 months and that her teacher, Annie Sullivan, taught her Braille, lip reading, finger spelling, and eventually how to speak. Students may watch the Oscar-winning 1962 movie The Miracle Worker, which depicts these milestones as miraculous. Keller has become a worldwide symbol for children to overcome any obstacle. At the U.S. Capitol, there's even a bronze statue of seven-year-old Keller at a water pump, inspired by the movie's depiction of a real milestone in Keller's life in which she recognizes water coming out of the pump after Sullivan spells the word water into the youngster's hand. However, there is still a great deal about her life and her accomplishments that many people don't know. What scholars of disability point out is that when students learn about Helen Keller, they often learn about her efforts to communicate as a child and not about the work she did as Mm -hmm. an adult. Mm -hmm. This limited instruction has implications for how students perceive people with disabilities. Mm. And so what it goes on to talk about in this article is the idea that we don't have enough education Mm -hmm. about the accomplishments of people with disabilities, that Mm -hmm. that's not in our school curriculum as much, it's not talked about in our world as much, in our newspapers, and you know, all the different forms of of media that we have, and therefore we don't appreciate the accomplishments of people with disabilities as much as we should, mm. because it's just not, we, our awareness is not there. Mm-hmm. And so it, now it was interesting because the article goes on to say that we all picture Helen Keller as this young child right. learning to communicate right. and, and maybe writing, but in some ways, she was even radical. This was a woman with very strong opinions Yes, who helped co-found the American Civil Liberties Union in 1920. Most of us don't know that. Mm-hmm. She was an early supporter of the NAACP, and she spoke out against lynchings at a time when that might have been controversial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was an early proponent of birth control. Like, basically, she was a person who had very strong opinions and would speak out, you know, even at a time when other people weren't right and maybe she felt like her position allowed her to she had a world stage she had a platform yeah she had a platform now in some ways you know she was even on the radar of the fbi because she became a member of the socialist party i mean there's a lot about her we don't know but again the point they're making is giving credits and raising awareness of the contributions of people who have challenges such as a physical disability, mm-hmm. blindness, deaf blindness, whatever it might be, so that we have a greater awareness. I'll give one more example that I thought was interesting. There was a different article, a 2015 Time article by Sasha Cohen, who teaches American Studies at Brandeis University. And she talks about Helen Keller's involvement in trying to address the issue of workers' rights and inequality issues. Here's a quote from that article. The progressive era, when she was sort of working politically in different organizations, was a period of rapid industrialization. And so there were these new conditions in which workers were subjected to this sort of heightened inequality and even danger and risk physically. So she, meaning Helen Keller, Mm -hmm. pointed out that a lot of times people went blind from accidents Mm -hmm. on the shop floor. Mm -hmm. She saw this real kind of imbalance in power between the workers and the sort of what we would call the 1% or the very few owners and managers at the top who were exploiting the workers. Mm -hmm. So again, it goes on to talk about 
a call for more contributions of from the people with disabilities being included in school, mm-hmm. more coverage of it in our media, because they feel that this is an issue that could be addressed. Mm-hmm. Because it does say that one in four Americans have a disability. Really? One mm-hmm. in four? That was from this Time article. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting point to bring up. It is. that It's not her life didn't end at the well. Mm-hmm. Her life continued and it took on grand meaning and she advocated. Mm-hmm. I think she really took what would be seen as a disability and turned it for good. Yes. And used it for good. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know what what you just said takes me back to what we said a minute ago when we were we were reliving our experience with the play and thinking about some of the points that that stood out to us and we said that the play ends with her making that connection yeah. but then it symbolically pointed towards her future yeah and I think that's what you just said it's we often in our memory of Helen Keller we do stop at the play right but that was opening the door for her right right that's it's- where she really started she and Annie yeah yes and Polly later yes that's where they were able to address issues communicate with people fight for places where they felt that there was inequality or mm-hmm. people's needs weren't being met. Mm-hmm. It, it really was just the beginning. Mm-hmm. They were the people that they needed when they were younger, mm-hmm. which is what we should all strive to be. Yeah. Yeah. Armchair psychologist. Well, I feel like we've already started armchairing just a little bit. Just a little. But but you know what? Let's let's bring it back a little bit to okay. to entertainment. You know, mm-hmm. since we kind of started with the play and mm-hmm. our experience, I right. know we have another soundbite to we share, do. don't we? Yes. This this next soundbite is from our dear friend Laura, mm-hmm. who was the director of The Miracle Worker, and she had a few things to say about her experience directing this mm-hmm. play. One of the most enjoyable journeys for me directing the show was just learning more about these incredible women. I had never directed a show where the the show was about someone who actually lived in the world and faced real, real obstacles and struggles. And it was just really interesting to learn about Annie Sullivan, the all the hardship that she went through, losing her family, becoming an orphan, having this uh, blindness thrust upon her, but, but herself being just an incredibly brilliant and tenacious person. And I think it was that special combination of skills that allowed her to kind of crack the nut that was Helen Keller all those years ago. And that was that was amazing to learn about because Helen Keller became such a social advocate in her later life. She achieved amazing things and became a a world-renowned figure. But Annie Sullivan was with her every step of the way. And learning about these two courageous, amazing women was, it certainly had a lasting impact on me. And as someone who works in the field of education, just meant so much to me. So that was Laura Adams, who directed The Miracle Worker in 2017. Those were her thoughts. And one thing that I am glad she brought up is that Annie was with her every step of the way. Mm-hmm. I love that. And also something we did not touch on with Annie's early life is that she lost her family. Mm-hmm. And her little brother, Jimmy, was in the almshouse with her. And he unfortunately passed away in the mm-hmm. almshouse. And he was around six or seven. So Helen truly did become this replacement child mm-hmm. for Annie. Yes. And she 
Helen became the family that she lost. Yeah, that's such a great point. Mm -hmm. Something Laura said that struck me was she took me back to the quote that I read from Helen just a few minutes ago, actually, because it ended with the phrase, it is the duty of the public to help him, meaning a person who um, might be blind or deafblind. It is the duty of the public to help him make the best of himself so that he can win light through work. Mm. And I think that's what Annie did. It's like it became her life's work and there was a lot of self-sacrifice even involved in it. But she took it upon herself to, like it became her life work. It became her duty, her self-imposed duty to open those doors for Helen so that Helen could bring light through work. work. Yeah, mm-hmm. the way the way she had in her quote. So wow. And then it, it brings me back to thinking about if we do have one in four Americans with disabilities, you know, how well are we meeting everybody's right. needs and, and giving them the ability to achieve all mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. and to impact the world in the way they're able to. Right. And that's why I think it's, again, to, to step back into entertainment, I think it's a, that's why these plays are important. Mm. It brings the spotlight to this so that you can go, I mean, we've we we only talk, we've only talked for almost an hour. And I, I know you and I could sit here and talk mm-hmm. about their life. And there's so many things that we've left out that you just right. can't include. But go read Helen's books. I'm, I'm looking at the story of my life and I forgot that she wrote so many. And I'm thinking, oh, I need to go back and read those. Mm-hmm. Read about their lives lives and learn about these people and it really will change your life because like like Laura said this is a real person these people really existed and the changes that they made impact us today mm-hmm. and the way they continue to live is for everyone to learn about them and to continue talking about them and telling the next generation of people that haven't heard about them well do you know that you can do this because of this woman and it goes back to this moment Mm. that's why this exists so inspiring it is so absolutely inspiring and that almost feels like too small a word it's just Mm -hmm. it's when you it feels like it's an overused word like they're so inspiring no my gosh they are so Mm -hmm. inspiring yes like like you said earlier like you feel like it's literally her story and what she did in this case at annie yeah even more so for you than Helen. Yeah. But her story changed your life. It it's, did. It's impacted you yes. as a person. It really has. You just, you kind of almost want to, to, to shake. I mean, not like literally, but just like shake people. Like, do you understand how amazing she was? Like she came from just dirt, nothing. And she is the person that was used by Providence to change this girl who then changed the world. Mm -hmm. Like Annie is the hinge that all of this is based on. And we wouldn't have all of this from Helen if it wasn't for Annie. Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh, she's just a phenomenon to me. So I have a little quote here. It's from Beyond the Miracle Worker Mm -hmm. by Kim E. Nielsen, which I highly recommend everybody read. I have little dog ears everywhere and, (laughs) and things underlined, but this is from the conclusion. And this is how, this is kind of Annie's final Mm -hmm. thoughts for us as the audience and it says Ann Sullivan Macy she did get married which we just didn't touch on Ann Sullivan Macy did not want to be remembered as a worker of miracles miracles required luck or divine intervention she wanted to be remembered as a skilled and innovative educator and to be remembered with compassion with understanding and with honesty in foolish remarks of a foolish woman which 
is kind of her attempt at a biography, which I would love to read. She left a subtle directive to future biographers to avoid idolization, which I'm dangerously (laughs) close to doing. Sorry, Annie. It says, I have met, this is a quote from Annie. I have met a number of famous men uneventfully, but I have learned something about them. They are human like the rest of us. They are not gods or even sacred cows as their biographers would have us believe. So what I take from that is Annie and Helen were humans, just like the rest of us. They had, especially Annie, she had no one up and for anybody else. Like if Annie can do this, guys, you can do it. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I get from that is she wasn't important in the way of fame. She became famous, but she wasn't that to start with. I agree. I love that quote because people can be reached. Mm -hmm. It takes the right skills. It takes Mm -hmm. intentional moves. It takes Mm -hmm. education. But find, find the way to reach somebody and to help them. Right. And that's what she wants to be known for doing. Right. It can be done. And I think that's the most inspiring part. Right. Don't think because they were famous, they got all of this. You got to go back to the beginning, Mm -hmm. which they were just two women who found each other. And that was, that was the miracle is that they found each other and this, the world changed. Absolutely. She's a true hero. Absolutely. And going back again to our theme, but when you think about the bend yeah. that was in her road yes. and and the way she made her turn, you know, we all have our bends. Some, we do. They may not be as sharp, no. but, but she definitely does um, show a great example of how to navigate something. Tenacious. That, yes. Yes. Tenacity, guys. If, you, if you've got some kind of bend in the road, we all, like you said, we all have it. Again, it seems too too light and too frothy to say don't give up but don't give up just keep pushing on pushing forward and you just don't know you don't know that you're not going to be the change in somebody else's life that's then going to change the world we don't know what the end of our road is Mm -hmm. we just got it when you get to that bend you got to pivot you got to just make the best of it well i think it's really obvious who we're going to cheers for this episode (laughs) huge huge cheers to Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan, two amazing women. Yes. Cheers to you both. Thank you for your lives. Thank you for dedicating your lives to the world at large. We're all changed because of you. Cheers. Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can Join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music, Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.